If you'd like to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to be reading verses uh, 14 to 22, and we're going to be looking at the last of the seven churches in Revelation. The passage for today brings us to the church of Laodicea, which um, for most Christians, if they're familiar with the churches, these seven churches, it's typically for them either Ephesus or Laodicea. And as I was um, writing out the sermon for today, I began to wonder myself if I was given the choice to pastor one of these seven churches, which would I choose? So Jesus speaks to the messengers of the church to the seven churches. Each church has a messenger. Again, there's differences of opinion as to who or what that messenger is. I personally shake out that it's the pastors of these seven churches. But if I was in their choose, if I could choose which of these seven churches, which would I choose? And I would pose a similar question to you as we come to this last one this morning. If you could choose in that time which of these cities you would live in, and you could choose which church you would be a part of in these seven churches, which one you would you choose? Now we have oh, over 90, I think we're pushing close to 100 now, uh, we have but at least over 90 different evangelical churches that preach the gospel in Cedar Rapids. So we come to Cedar Rapids and we've got this smorgasbord of churches to choose from. But if you lived in the day of this writing, you went to Ephesus, you moved there, um, you had one church to choose from. As Americans, that would really gripe us and you might go start one just so that you could have a second option because it's not nice to have only one option. But you would choose from one of these seven churches. Which church would you choose? Which church would I choose to pastor? What church would you choose to attend? Would it be Ephesus, the church that has great doctrine and great teaching, but has no love? Or maybe it would be one of the two churches that is commended. Yeah, I want to go to the church that's commended by Jesus, and there's no criticism, but they're under intense persecution. And many of them are dying off day, uh, week after week uh, at the hands of bloodthirsty people. That's a good church to be a part of, right? On Sunday, ooh, we lost 10 more people this last week, and they didn't move to another church. They just were eaten by lions this week. You definitely, I don't think, I wouldn't want to pastor one of the three churches that um, has moral problems, open immorality happening within the church. That wouldn't be my choice. And so then you're left with Laodicea. And it's, you're going to find out this morning, not a good place to be. Not good things are happening at Laodicea. Which church would you choose? If you want to choose the church where you're going to spiritually flourish, it would be one of the two ones that are suffering intense persecution. But those are our choices, and this morning, 
we are going to look at Laodicea and hear what's happening there. So to that end, let's read Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will, and the word is actually, vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You ready to join this church? It's a great place, huh? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Laodicea was the happening city of the first century. All of these cities were significant, some of them more significant than others. Ephesus was very much on people's radar as an up-and-coming important city. But Laodicea is the city of of. Uh, Western, what is today, Western Turkey, or what was Asia Minor of their day. Laodicea was located at the intersection of two of the two biggest trade routes in the area. East-West went straight to Ephesus, and North-South went up uh, into um, the area of uh, Sardis and beyond, and down south uh, to uh, other lands in east into Central and Eastern Asia. Every major bit of trade came right through Laodicea. It was the beautiful city full of beautiful people. If we wanted to put together something similar to Laodicea today, we might want to combine Martha's Vineyard, Hollywood, and the Silicon Valley into one city, and that would have been Laodicea. It was what we might call filthy rich. There was so much money flowing through this city that the people were affluent beyond imagination. It was the banking capital of Asia Minor. Everything happened in Laodicea. All of the money was largely concentrated in Laodicea, and these people lived an incredible um, life. They were the admiration of all the cities around them. 
Money flowed like water in the city. When an earthquake hit the area in 60, AD 60, and remember this was, this is still till today, a very volcanic region and there's a lot of earthquakes and things that take place in this area. In AD 60, a massive earthquake hit the area and wiped out Laodicea. Laodicea. It was basically just rubble. The surrounding cities, Hierapolis and Colossae, that's the, the church that Paul wrote the letter of Colossians to, they are about 10 miles away, one to the north and one to the east of uh, Laodicea. The earthquake hit those same cities, leveled them completely, and the Roman emperor came in and offered to help rebuild those cities, to put them back on their feet. Laodicea refused any help from the Roman emperor, not because they didn't need it, in a sense, but because they didn't want it. Maybe you could say they didn't need it. They had so much of their own money, they didn't need any gifts from the Roman government to help them rebuild. They rebuilt their own city. One man, they had a massive stadium that um, would be similar maybe to like Kentucky Downs today uh, with a track around it and uh, Gladiator Arena and, and the seats coming up. One guy himself paid to rebuild that entire structure when it was uh, destroyed. There's another man who uh, donated, made one donation at one point in time of today's equivalent would be $54 million. He just paid that out to help rebuild the city. And that was just one of his gifts. He was known for having paid all kinds of money for refurbishing and putting in better roads and things in the area. They were just filthy, rich people. And those guys were not the exception. They were the rule in that city. Laodicea was also a center of fashion. Shepherds in the area raised a strain or a breed of sheep that produced very dark black wool that was very rich and very soft. And that was made into garments which all the rich and famous people from Rome wanted to wear. If you were reading Vogue magazine and you were seeing the latest fashions, you would see people dressed in Laodicean garments. They, they, so the, so the, that was another industry which brought in a lot of money because rich people were willing to pay it. There was also a school of medicine in Laodicea. It wasn't just that there was a temple to Asclepius, who was the god of healing. They actually had established a, a medical college in Laodicea, and people would come from all over to be treated there. And their specialty was eyes. Uh, they had developed a particular eye salve from minerals in the surrounding area that apparently were very effective and people with money from all over the Roman Empire would come there to be treated for their eyes. They had the top eye doctors of their time in that city. So it was a great place to live. You had everything that you would want and you could ask for in Laodicea. But they had one little problem. Out of all the great things about the city of Laodicea and all of the 
lifestyle and amenities that were available in Laodicea, they had one small problem, and that was they didn't have good drinking water. Which good drinking water is usually a key component in the founding of a city. But Laodicea, when they chose its location and they founded the city, they couldn't find good drinking water. To the north, again, was Hierapolis, and Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, thermal hot springs from the volcanic stuff. And people from all over the empire would come there to sit in the hot springs and to drink the water, which supposedly had healing properties. To the east was Colossae, and Colossae was known for very fresh, cold mountain water. There was a mountain uh, peak that came off behind the city, and the water would, would flow down that mountain peak, and it would come to a set of cliffs just outside the city, which formed beautiful waterfalls, and this cold, fresh water would fall down off those waterfalls and then flow through uh, just outside of the city and was very refreshing to the city's thirsty residents. But the best water that Laodicea could acquire came through aqueducts. They had no source of water within the city, so they had to build piping systems to go up to a place where they could find the nearest water, and it would travel through those aqueducts down into the city, and it was very heavily contaminated with minerals. It had what's known as an emetic quality. Anybody know what emetic? Some of you, Dr. Chandra knows for sure what that is. Something that has emetic qualities means when you drink it, it makes you throw up. So some of you as parents have, there's a little bottle of stuff that you could buy. We had it in our house because one of our children ate something that they weren't supposed to. And uh, we, uh, we called poison control and they said, give them this stuff. So we ran and got some, gave it to them. And it's very effective. Uh, if you want your kid to throw up, I wouldn't advise it as a means of discipline, but it's very effective to get them to empty their stomach contents. And if you drank that water, now what they could do, they could bring it down, they could store it in jars that had large open tops, and they would set it out in the sun and, and let the sunlight hit it and be in the open air, and those minerals would kind of condense and evaporate off, and they could also filter it out, and they could get most of it out, and then they could drink it. But it tasted terrible, and if you drank it straight, it would make you vomit. It is to the members of a church in this city that Jesus speaks. To the beautiful people in the beautiful city who enjoyed every good thing and evil thing that the culture could offer in that day, to a city that had no good drinking water, Jesus speaks. And his words are not those of commendation. His words are not of approval and affirmation. Instead, Jesus seems to have saved his most harsh, most condemning words for this final church. He has nothing good to say about them. And I was speaking with Ellen just a few minutes ago. And as I studied 
this letter, and I've been familiar with Laodicea and the, and the letters for a long time, but for some reason, this time as I studied this, this letter to this church, his words brought sadness to my soul. Because I sat there and thought, what would it be like to pastor this church? And I, I wondered what it would be like to pastor a church in the city of the time where there's all that affluence and to be a part of that culture and to be totally clueless about your spiritual condition. Ephesus was the church that had no love. You had churches that had horrible immorality in the open and one probably during their worship services. And you could call one the loveless church, you could call three the immoral churches, you could call two the persecuted churches, Laodicea is the clueless church. They have no idea of their actual condition. And it just made me sad. But Jesus speaks words to this church that are condemning, but he also speaks words to this church that are hopeful. And so I, my desire is that by the time we're done this morning, we hear those hopeful words. And if we find ourselves in the shoes of Laodiceans, there's hope, there's promise. Jesus begins by identifying himself in verse one as the amen. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus identifies himself to these people as the one who is the source of truth, who speaks and lives truth, who knows and has authority over his creation. When you read that word, the beginning of God's creation, Jesus is not saying, I was the first thing created by God. He is saying in the original language, I am the first cause of the creation. God spoke, and, and Jesus is saying, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I made it happen. I brought it to be. The letter to Colossae says very similar things. So when Jesus speaks, he says the judgments he makes are always true and right, and he has the authority to condemn this church. And what's curious to me is Jesus, as he begins to speak to them, as he dictates this letter to John, that is to go to the messenger of the church of Laodicea. Jesus uses the metaphor of drinking water to frame his complaint with them. He, he says to them, I wish that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I, I found it so interesting with each of these letters, and I hope, you, hope you've caught this, with each of these letters, there is a connection to their city and to their culture in the way Jesus presents himself and the things that he says to them. He speaks on spiritual levels and spirit, about spiritual things, 
but he ties it to their culture and their experience of everyday life. I grew up hearing that Jesus would rather have you be spiritually hot or spiritually cold than to be apathetic. And, and I will say this as kindly as I possibly can. That's ridiculous. It's just crazy. Jesus has no desire for his people to be spiritually cold. That doesn't even make sense. Theologically, we know that the Holy Spirit is present in people's lives and he is moving them to spiritual growth and to Christ-likeness. Jesus does not operate in a system of salvation that saves you and leaves you spiritually cold. So this is not a comparison of people who are on fire for God or those who are completely ignore, ignoring God but are Christians. And Jesus says, man, you're just apathetic and I wish you were hot or cold. That's not what he's saying. He's comparing this to drinking water. He's drawing from their everyday experience involving the hot springs of one city and the cold, refreshing waters of the other city. And he's saying, I wish that you were like Colossae or Hierapolis. I wish you had some benefit as my people. I wish that there was some benefit in the way that you could bring healing to people's souls or bring refreshment to people's souls, but you don't do either. The only thing that you're good for is making people vomit. Yay. Imagine that on your sign-off front. First Baptist Church of Laodicea, we'll make you vomit. Come join us this Sunday, you know? I like visitors. They always laugh at my jokes. The rest of you are so used to them, you just stare at me. Jesus views the church in Laodicea as having no useful purpose. Their works benefit no one. And they're nauseatingly useless. And then Jesus gets very specific with them and how they view their world. The members of this church do not glory in the goodness and greatness of God. They glory in their wealth and their garments and their privilege. They find their identity in how they are perceived and their possessions, what they have and what they do. The most condemning statement, the saddest statement in this letter is where Jesus says, you say, I have need of nothing. You know, as I thought about this, I thought as Americans, we kind of live that way. I have need of nothing except the things that we covet, right? It apparently is a situation in Laodicea that people didn't even have to covet because they had everything. But it's such a sad way to live. You say, he says in verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
including Jesus. They're doing church in name only. And they are equating all of their success and their acquisition of stuff as evidence of their goodness. And they don't need anything. And that's what saddens me and and Jesus takes it a step further in identifying their true spiritual state of which they seem to be totally unaware. Jesus goes on to say, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I've said this before with the other letters. So this letter would have come from John to Laodicea. It would have been circulated through all the churches. So so the letter to Ephesus would have been circulated through all these seven churches. The letter to Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, all these other Sardis would have been cycled through these other cities. So my question is, in my mind, for what it's worth, is did the Laodicean church get their letter last? Because it would have started at Ephesus and worked its way to them. So was their letter opened at Ephesus in Smyrna? Or did it stay closed and then it went to Laodicea? Because if it was closed and it was sealed and it went to Laodicea, I think the Laodicean pastor would have probably lost that letter somewhere. But sadly for the church at Laodicea, it was inspired, it's Jesus' words, it's carried on down. Just like all of Peter's stupid mistakes and statements have been preserved for almost 2,000 years for everybody to see how dumb he was at times. And the church at Laodicea, imagine that Sunday morning when they gathered and the messenger of this church stood up and said, uh, I have a letter to read. Uh, John wrote this, and it apparently is straight from Jesus. Um, yeah, uh, please don't get up and walk out while I read this. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. But Jesus says to us, you are wretched and pitiable and blind and poor and naked. Imagine the celebration that took place that morning. And as I put myself in their place, that's what saddens me. Jesus says they're spiritually miserable. They're to be pitied by everyone around them. They are spiritually destitute. They have no spiritual understanding, and they're shamefully exposed before God. 
And the best that we can conclude from this letter is that these were people who identified as Christians doing church, probably believing that they gathered for the worship of God and yet completely unaware of their spiritual state. Week after week, clueless to who they really are as a people. And that moved me from sadness to honestly being scared. Jesus' rebuke scares me because the world described in Laodicea, the situation in Laodicea of the culture and the life is the world in which we live and move every day. We wake up in our air-conditioned houses. We walk to our refrigerators and pull out food from all over the world. We eat strawberries in February and watermelon in November. We eat wonderful steaks. We have little robots that vacuum our floors. Need I go on? It's the world we live in. Affluence, the enjoyment of all the good things life can offer. Although some complain we have good medical care, the day that you think we don't have good medical care, you just go up to Canada and live there for a while and find out about their medical system and how they tell older people, this is a true story, older people who find out they have cancer, that it's their duty as a good citizen of Canada to die and not use up the government's resources. We have good medical care. We have the opportunity to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. We can drive or fly to places that people only used to read about. And we have the ability and opportunity to create beautiful things ourselves. We live in a culture where the choice of every flavor of church we could want and the privilege to worship without fear of persecution. And this passage scares me because I wonder if it is possible that we as Christians could be just as blind to our spiritual condition. Are we simply doing church in the name of Jesus without the power of Jesus for our own glory and to feel good about ourselves? If so, and this is a key question, if that's possible, how would we know and what can be done about it? I'm going to say right now, in case you're wondering where I'm going with this, I don't think Northbrook is the church of Laodicea. Okay? 
But at the same time, there's a part of me that sits back and says, how do you know you're right? Is it just because you like these people and you care about them and you know they've been through hard stuff and you've walked with them that you, you cut them slack? Are you just as clueless as the pastor of Laodicea? So I have to honestly ask the question, how would I as a pastor know and what can be done about it and what can you as a participant of Northbrook, how could you know if that's what's going on in you and what can be done about it? And I think like all of our spiritual questions and all of our spiritual problems, the answer lies in Jesus. We come back to who Jesus proclaims himself to be, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The answer lies in Jesus because it is in him that we find truth. It lies in Jesus because he is the truth. And in him we can find hope. And that's what I love about this letter. While it saddens me, and while elements of it scare me, what I love is Jesus does not stop in verse 17. He doesn't stop in verse 17 where he characterizes them as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He goes on to offer hope. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus makes an offer to these people who are clueless and all we need is ears to hear it. Jesus says, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. My mind went back to a very popular passage in Isaiah 55, to a part that is a little more obscure and people are not as acquainted with. Jesus, or God through Isaiah, says to his people that my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And that, as I've said many times, ends up in prayers. Where you don't understand what God's doing, and so we say, God, I, I'm thankful that your thoughts are, more, are higher than my thoughts, and your ways are different from my ways, and, and that you know what's going on, which is completely taking that verse out of context and stripping of its meaning, because God is saying to his people, you are so corrupt, and you are so sinful because he's speaking to them about going into captivity. He's condemning them. He's judging them. And he says to them, you don't think it all the way I think. It's not that God is transcendent. It is that God is holy and his people have become so unholy they can't in any way think the way he thinks. 
and their way of life is so unholy that they do not walk in his ways at all anymore. So be careful how you use that when you pray. But what God says to those people, his ancient people, who are on the verge of going into captivity because they, have, they are so corrupt, he says to them in Isaiah 55, he invites everyone who thirsts to come to the waters. He invites the poor to come buy and eat, to come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Jesus echoes these words from Isaiah 55. Come and buy from me gold that is as pure as it can be. You want true riches? Come to me. You have riches right now that corrupt, that moths will eat, that, that you have to sit around and try and protect from people stealing from you. And Jesus says, come and buy from me gold refined in the fire. Come and buy from me white garments so that the sin of you, so that your nakedness, the shame of your nakedness will be covered. And the question that goes through my mind is, how, how do you buy gold from God? How do you buy garments from Jesus? And that question, as Jesus echoes Isaiah 55, has already been answered. He says, you're thirsty, you're, spiritual thirst, you're spiritually thirsty. Come to me for drink. Buy drink from me. Buy bread and wine from me without price. In other words, that transaction is simply ask me. Ask me for the water. Ask me for food and I will give it to you. And when Jesus says, come and buy for me gold refined in the fire and white raiment so that the, the shame of your nakedness can be covered, he's saying, just ask me and I'll give it to you. But you've got to realize first that you need it. You've got to realize that you are poor and that you are naked. And until you come to a place where you realize that you need Jesus and that all of this other stuff is simply stuff and can never satisfy and is not the reason we're here, until you come to that point, you will live in a way where you have, in your mind, need of nothing. And Jesus says, you need everything. You have nothing. You need me. There's massive hope in that. If you identify this morning that you live in a world where you function every day without really thinking about Jesus, without really seeing him as the center of your life, and you're going through the monotonous ritual of getting up, going to work, or doing whatever you do, and getting it all ready, and then doing work all day, and then getting in your car, and going home, or being at home, and doing things there, until you eat supper, and you go to bed, and you start all over the next morning. 
If you're going through that monotonous ritual of life that we all go through and Jesus is not entering your mind in all those moments of the day, you have reached a place of, I have need of nothing. I can do this on my own. And Jesus says, you have need of me. You have need of everything and I'll give it to you. It's a shifting of where we find our satisfaction and where we find our strength and where we find our hope from the things that we have and the people that we are to the person of Jesus and what he offers us. John says in his first level letter, don't crave the things that the eyes see. Don't crave the things that the body wants. Don't boast in who you are, what you've accomplished, and what you have. Let him who boasts, Paul says, boast in Christ. And John says in his letter, all of those things are not the things of the Father, but are the things of the world. Jesus offers us true riches, unstained clothing, and the ability to see. He offers us riches in eternity that will not corrode the covering of righteousness before God the Father so that we can come into his presence at any time with boldness and the perception of understanding what is true and good through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this whole thing, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, boasting in what we have and are. When someone ignores me or someone tries to give me advice about something that is incredibly simple, there is this part of my mind that thinks, do you know who I was The most frustrating part of my life today is, do you know who I was? And then I start this little rehearsal in my mind of who I was. And then I think if they could only know who I was and what I've done and where I've been and what I've seen and what I know and how people used to consider me, And the reality is that thinking is boasting in who I was, who I perceive myself to be based on what I've accomplished. And then I feel yucky. And then I have opportunity to change my perspective. Do you know who you are? You know who you really are? You're the son of God. You're the brother of Jesus. You have all the promises of the saints. You have eternity on a new earth where there will never be sin forever in the presence of God. So shut up, John.
there's something else that Jesus offers us, and that's relationship. There's this famous illustration here that's been made into pictures, painting, paintings, all kinds of things. But Jesus uses the illustration of knocking at a door. Jesus tells them if they open the door, he will dine. He will commune with them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, if any person opens the door, I will come in and dine with them. This is commonly seen as an evangelistic appeal that Jesus is knocking at the door of our heart, asking to come in. I have all kinds of theological problems with that illustration, but I, I will say that we have this phrase of asking Jesus to come into our heart, which you will not find in the Bible anywhere, but it's the reality of a relationship with God. That we answer the Spirit's call and say yes. I am a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus died to pay for my sin. He rose again from the dead to guarantee me eternal life forever with the Trinity. But in context, this Jesus knocking at the door seems to communicate something different because Jesus is talking to the messenger of a church. And he's not standing, this, this is just a pathetic picture. He's not standing at the door of your heart, knocking, asking to come in. The picture here in context is Jesus is standing at the door of their gathering place, knocking, because he's on the outside and they're doing their thing as a church body. Isn't that a sad, pathetic picture? And that's happening because they don't need him. They're doing great. Everything's good. They totally left Jesus behind. Now, this does not undermine the doctrine of the omnipresence of Jesus. It's an illustration. It's an analogy. Just like Jesus isn't drinking water from Laodicea and literally vomiting. It's a symbol. It's an illustration. But Jesus is saying, you're doing your whole thing and you're doing it without me. This church in their spiritual state have moved on without him. And to put it in other words, they are seeking to do Christian churchy things in their own power and their own wisdom. Essentially, they have excluded him from their gathering and ministry. They talk about him, but he's not part of it. As it says in the New Testament, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And more than anything else, Jesus is saying to them, you need me. You need me. And I would ask you this morning, as you got out of bed and went through your typical Sunday morning routine, 
We all have our own. As you went through your Sunday morning routine, was there any moment this morning that you asked Jesus to be at work in your life as you gathered, came to gather with other believers? Was there any moment this morning where in your thoughts or your prayers, you asked the Holy Spirit to teach you from his word? Or were you more concerned with maybe getting some food, or me getting my coffee? Gotta have my coffee. Figuring out what you're gonna wear? Can't be, I don't wanna be too, and I don't wanna be not enough, so I gotta find something here. Getting in your car and driving? Getting out of your car and walking up, was there any moment of Holy Spirit, teach me this morning? Help me through your power to worship and exalt. Help me to identify someone who needs love and comfort or encouragement or affirmation. Or did you do your normal Sunday morning in your Christian-y, churchy way to be here and you left Jesus, so to speak, somewhere at the door? So I was thinking about this passage. I remembered a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor that he had mentored. And in that letter, 1 Timothy, Paul writes Timothy, who he calls his son in the faith. And at that point, Timothy is most likely the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He writes him th these words. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, we live in that world. Do we, do we contribute to that world? It's easy to point fingers, but are there times when we're contributing to that world? And that's where Paul says to Timothy that these people have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And you realize what Paul is saying when he connects that to the rest of that? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power? He's talking about people who are Christians. Because unsaved people don't care about having an appearance of godliness. He's talking to Christians who are behaving this way. I, I think they must have had Facebook and Instagram back in those days, but I'm not sure. Maybe Twitter. Because all you got to do is read Twitter and all that stuff, and you've got this coming through. 
As I read that and remember those words that Paul wrote, I, I thought, is this the problem in Laodicea? Could it be a problem in the churches of America today? Yes. And as, I, as my mind came back to you all, whom I love dearly, and you're on my mind all week long, and it doesn't shut off in the night, thought, I prayed, kind of hope it's not the problem of Northbrook. And I would offer you an important question to ask yourself this morning. As people living in a Laodicean culture, how can we know if we are becoming Laodicean Christians? And also, how can we live as conquerors, because Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give him to sit on my throne. And interestingly to me, in the context of Paul's warning to Timothy, it's always, it's always good to, when verses come to your mind, to go and look to see what's around those verses, because it puts that verse in context and helps you to realize important things at times. But in the context of Paul's warning to Timothy about the people in the last days, and apparently Christians who have the appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof, in that same context, Paul writes some very familiar words. After telling Timothy to continue in the way he has learned, Paul says these words, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know where we need to start as Christians? It's God's word. Paul is saying to Timothy, this is what the last days are going to be like. You continue in what you've learned and never lose sight of God's word and what he says there and be open to it and learn from it and ask the Holy Spirit to bring you into conformity with it. Essentially, we need to be in God's word, learning of our Father's plans, learning from Jesus' teachings in life and evaluating whether we are keeping in step with the Spirit. We must ask the Holy Spirit to teach us, to open our eyes to truth and empower us to be more like Jesus. And I will say again, God is not as interested in your perfection than he is your direction. He may have brought you to a place of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, but until you are exactly like Jesus, you are still needing to head in a particular direction. And we are too good at resting on our laurels and deciding that we have come far enough and God calls us to become like Jesus. And that's not going to fully happen until we die or are raptured. But in the meantime, it's our direction and it's our pursuit of life. You could sit back and say, is that all worth it? 
And I would respond by asking you, would you like to sit on a throne with Jesus? I would. I think that would be really, really cool. That and much more awaits those who conquer. I would say it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is at work bringing us into conformity to the person of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus who died and gave himself for us so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and we can come boldly into your presence. The fact that we can pray to you and you listen to us is because of Jesus. God, help us to be the people that you want us to be. Help us to be people who are pursuing Christ-likeness in our thoughts and in our actions. Help us to be people who are not just putting on a form of godliness, but help us to be people who are being transformed from the inside out so that who we are is how we live. Help us to not deny the power Help us to recognize our need of Jesus, our need of the Holy Spirit, and our need of you. In your son's name, amen.